0: Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Delaroche, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado. Zenki Roshi's teaching is made possible through the Boulder Zen Center's membership program. If you're benefiting from these talks and would like to continue hearing them here on the podcast, I hope you'll consider becoming a member. You can do so on our website, boulderzen.org. Zenki Roshi's book, The Path of Aliveness, is now available for purchase. You can get a copy directly from the publisher at Shambhala.com, and you'll find a link in the episode notes. Now here's Zenki Roshi with this week's talk. Good morning, everybody. Hello, everyone. Cool has joined remotely. I'm just giving uh, the room a little time to settle down because we need more seats and stuff. And then also a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Next week, I'll be in Texas and uh, give a workshop and talk in Austin and, and then another talk in Houston. And Gary will be giving the Dharma talk here. And then we've decided to uh, take a little bit of a break, a late summer break, because of various transitions that are happening. Um, We're going on a wild Dharma trip. Uh, We'll be in the mountains for six uh, days with a group of 12 people. There's still one spot open, if you'd like to come, let me know. Um And so this will take like the beginning of September. And then, uh as you may have seen in our email announcement, AGA, our program manager, is going to um, Eastern Europe to help with the refugee crisis there and... So we have a new program manager, Michelle, she's here today. And so we'll need a little time to transition. Uh, that's one thing. And also, um, I could use a little bit of a break because uh, in the residence here, uh, we will have a new resident, Bill, who's here online, and he's going to move in uh, at the end of this month and then i will start this 8 week course um that is somewhat aligned with the book i just published and um that's will start in late september and run for 8 weeks into november so we'll we'll make an announcement about that if you want to participate <coughs> so there will be a bit of a break michelle thought that we should Keep entertaining you in some way. So we'll think about we'll think about something. There's still Zazen. Some online entertainment, yeah, and there's still Zazen. That's right. Mm-hmm. This is the greatest entertainment of all. So let's talk about it. <laughs> As uh, some of you know, uh, I have a 16 month old toddler son right now and literally it's he's a toddler you know he's just like walking around like a drunkard sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and uh sometimes i find myself sitting on the couch and just watching him walk around like this and it's quite delightful he he's so sweet and um He he picks up something, you know, a toy car or a tomato or something. We have a tomato on the porch, so he tries to reach and rip them off the vine. (sighs) Or he comes in with some basil leaves that he's just plucked. And I watch him uh, with a lot of love and uh, affection, care for you know his his uh fairly new life but you know i don't think he feels his life is new it's it just is and he figures out things physically you know how to use legs and arms and but he also figures out things mentally so he's uh trying to take hold off and control of the world by um yeah, I, in the, essentially imitating the words that uh, uh, his parents use and also other people here in the center and he repeats. And So he stumbles um, physically and mentally around. And sometimes he falls down and hits his head. My wife, Sophie, calls it Uh, going bonk. So then she says to him, Oh, did you go bonk? (laughs) Yeah, so he went, he went bonk again. It's a drama and then it, um, it's hot and then it cools down. Sometimes it cools down instantly and sometimes it takes quite a long time. So I, I watch him like this, and uh it's delightful on the one hand, and then it's also I watch for another dimension in him that I know in myself, which is um something deeply uncomfortable, actually. And uh his way of dealing with this massively uncomfortable. Place, which I'll speak more about, is to just cry and whine. Mm. And so he has, luckily, he has parents who pay attention to that and then we'll do our best to comfort and supply something that isn't quite right or be assuring that it's. Um, that basically things are okay, despite the fact that it doesn't feel that way right now. You know, basic stuff. Now, why do I talk about that? Um, let me switch a little bit and speak about Sazen, which is the core of our practice. When you first sit down, maybe as a beginner, but even if you're more experienced and you have um, something disturbing going on in your life, or just generally, because actually you uh, have a very hard time getting a handle on your thinking process, what you find is that your mind is spinning in some way. Well, that's one way to speak about it, that it's spinning, it, it, it produces what... More technically, I would call discursive thought. Now, the Latin word "discur" it means to run around in various directions, and I love that, you know, etym- etymological definition because it describes very well what the mind is doing. It runs around in various directions. It can seem very chaotic and uh, unintelligible, like you don't quite understand why the mind is running around in. In this way, in this uh, sometimes seemingly random and chaotic way, or sometimes kind of obsessive way of getting into certain loops of and repetitive ways of keep thinking about the same thing, and but there's no no resolution. So this is a it's a very basic observation. You know, we sit down. We quiet the body, and then we get to notice that. Now, immediately, most people just start hating this. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't like this about myself. I'm going to try, and I've been talking about this, I'm going to try to use Zazen to fix this issue of my mind spinning, of my mind being discursive in this way this is uh, a doomed strategy you know you you can try it for years decades even it's not going to work so um, if you have this strategy still in some way then um, consider changing Mm -hmm. your strategy (laughs) giving it up so um What Zazen is about is not so much to um, quiet your mind, but to shift into a different um, way of functioning, let's say. So today I thought, like, how do you describe this shift? You know, I tried to talk about this in various ways all the time, but you know, let's let's just for the for the heck of it, um call it the shift from mentalness to bodyfulness. You know, mentalness. So you or more technically, your attention is glued into this mentalness into this discursive thinking and so now you know or you for, for the sake of this talk you imagine what it would be like to shift from out of this mentalness into what I call bodyfulness which means the sensations of breathing and uh, being the body and also the sensations of uh, that come to you through your senses Okay. When we shift into this um, bodyfulness, give up the mentalness of our approach, there is something that, again, I haven't used this in this way, but there's, there's a kind of darkness there. You find a kind of darkness Many people, you may be one of them, maybe we all all are to a certain degree are deeply afraid of this darkness. I call this darkness uh, aliveness. What you find is your aliveness. And there's something... I'll start with the delightful aspects of this, and then we can look at that which makes us afraid. There's something... Tremendously satisfying about this aliveness. It can be, it's exciting, it's, it's sort of exhilarating in a, in a certain way to feel that you are just there for no reason. And this is something that I observe in my toddler son, you know, he's just, he, um, Makes these sounds of delight that are just—I don't know—I'm I'm envious in a way because I don't make these sounds anymore. Even though I sometimes feel quite delighted, but I couldn't just throw my arms up and say Oh ah! <laughs> You know, I—I I guess I can, but you know, it feels a little—it feels a little funny, you know. It's, a, it's not an adult thing to do. Or he has this, this is a new thing, he has this happy dance now. It's like he just stomps his feet, like, tuk, 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 just in the same place. And then he just wiggles his little body, like that, and it just goes on. It's like, yeah, why not? That's, that's a way to, you know, make sense of life. <laughs> So I, I have spoken about this as the buzz of basic aliveness. It's like your cells are vibrating with energy. It's like and it, it's just there. I, I think it's even there when you feel terrible, because these it can be numb to some degree, but not fully, because you know if it was fully numb, you'd be dead. It's, it really is the function of aliveness that there's some energy. Now, if you can use zazen skillfully, zazen becomes a way to shift from your discursive mentalness into bodyfulness, and you find a way to uh, tap into that uh, basic aliveness, and it starts to nourish you. It's just there; you you have to do anything for it. Maybe you know, feed yourself, breathe. So, when those essentials are gone, it becomes uh, difficult. But I call it darkness for a reason, like when you shut your eyes, it's dark. There's maybe some inner vision that also produces light, but let's say, let's just stay with this darkness for a moment. you close your eyes, you kind of allow yourself to feel into your body, and feeling into your body is kind of a dark space. It's just what I'm saying right now. But it's dark in a psychological way, too. Um I'm gonna speak about this and, and and um open up various aspects. In Western psychology, there's like there's talk about core vulnerabilities. You know, maybe you've heard this phrase. And I'm not intending to be critical of it because I think there's, you know, real, real substance to trying to describe something there. But I've, I've always had an uneasy feeling about, with this talk about core vulnerabilities because it sounds kind of neat. Like there are core vulnerabilities, meaning you could enumerate them. And you could know which ones are your core vulnerabilities. And when you know what they are, you can develop uh, a way to relate to them, a kind of strategy of how to deal with it and so forth. So there's a certain kind of, just implied, is a kind of neatness. It's like there are core vulnerabilities and, you know, what are yours? What are you going to do about it? And um my experience with dropping into from mentalness into bodyfulness is... It's, it's there's nothing neat here at all there isn't so it's like it's not core vulnerabilities it's just there's vulnerability at the core. It's just a massive blob of vulnerability it's like a it's like a black hole, it's like, it's something that feels like it could just swallow you. There's no clarity there. It's disorienting in the sense that it's like it is just this space. So what's going on here? Because this is so uncomfortable, we stay in the mental space. And when you stay in the mental space, you are protected against this darkness. And when you're protected against the darkness, the price you pay is that you don't have access to your aliveness. This is the dilemma. So... Much of zazen is, is to build the stability of your posture so that you can tolerate the darkness. <clears throat> you build confidence in first tolerating and then accepting and then inviting this darkness into your life. Because it already is. It's not something we can avoid. We think we can. This is where these, um, where certain strategies come in that we apply, try to apply, but they all fail. This doesn't go away. There's nothing, you know, it's funny. It takes, it took me a long time to realize that this is something that cannot be fixed. I've mentioned to you that one of my main strategies in life is to go fix it. Well, let's try to fix this, and it's, it's not possible. You can't fix it. You can only learn to relax more and more with it. Now. What's really there in this seemingly unintelligible, ungraspable darkness? Well, we are, I, this is just something I I can only speak for myself mm-hmm. and also um, extrapolate from what other people tell me. So you always have to see for yourself, you know, what's going on. But my sense is that we each are afraid, deeply afraid, of different aspects of this darkness. Some aspects we're okay with, others we are absolutely not okay with. So, for example, there are people I have spoken to, and I can also see from afar, who are incredibly afraid of death. I mean, really phobic. That's not the case for me. That doesn't mean I'm relaxed about my mortality. In fact, I, I count on the fact that fears will arise when I face my mortality more directly than I do now. We face it all the time, but we don't quite believe that. But, you know, if you have a disease or you have an have a, an accident or something, you face, or you age, you face mortality in a, in a more severe way than when you're a young person. I mean, that's just, practically speaking, the case. So, I assume that these fears will come up, but I don't walk around being nervous about dying in a, on a day-to-day basis. But there are people who are, right? I'm just using that as an example... This isn't judging anything. It's just like, that's not the case for me, but it's the case for someone else. So I think part of the dark space is also how profoundly we are existentially alone. I noticed this very... I mean, I noticed it with my thinking mind very clearly as a teenager. Uh, I, I remember exactly when it happened, and I realized nobody's going to ever be in this place <clears throat> that I am in. So I will never be understood. I had a problem with this. And in some ways, I know that I still have a problem with this, although I'm more relaxed now, because, look, I spend so much of my life's energy to... um Study language, read a lot, write, communicate as clearly as I can to be understood. So you can use the things that you do in life to sort of study yourself. And it's like, what am I trying to fix with my, with my activity? You know, so uh, the way I pay attention to language and clarity of, you know, using concepts and one of the things I'm obsessed about is how can I connect language to what I'm actually feeling, and not just talk and I want my concepts to be both succinct, but I want them to always be fresh and pick up what I'm really feeling. So okay, so I'm obsessed with this. so I'm tr- I guess I'm trying to be understood. And yet, I know it's not possible, not fully. So I I made peace with the fact that I can be understood to some degree. And I think that's, in some ways, good enough. But this fundamental aloneness that's lurking there in the darkness is just still a kind of, I don't know, it's just an insult. (laughs) You know, some people think death is an insult. I think this aloneness is just an insult. (laughs) There's also a, a profound insecurity, or you can say lack of safety in this darkness. You know how people are craving safety? Doesn't exist. Again, like I said, I can communicate well and to some degree I can achieve understanding, mutual understanding and so forth. And I can settle for that and say, that's not bad. So let's stop complaining. But it's the same with safety. You wish for safety, but it's fundamentally it's not there. You are extremely vulnerable physically and mentally and emotionally. It's not going to go away. How much, However much we want to create safe spaces and safety in our relations, and I'm not saying this is a bad effort, I'm just saying fundamentally it's... We have to come to terms with how insecure and unsafe we are in our existential being. But it's, uh, it's a kind of terror you know, for some people more than others. Also depending on what kind of experiences you had that accumulate around that aspect of this darkness. Also, you know, just not knowing whether you're going to have food and shelter in a kind of reliable, permanent way. We think we have that, and then you watch something like what happened in Ukraine, and it's like the world is different from one day to another when there's some other country decides to attack, or how societies fall apart you know, unpredictably like what happened in Germany in the thirties, which I resonate a lot with, as you know, being born and raised in Germany and feeling the reverberations of that history in the society. But now what's happening in America, this like build up of um of internal I mean, to the country, tension and this like gearing up for a civil war. I don't feel I mean if I'm honest, I don't feel any stability in our society and uh, it's um, we have the illusion of stability, but this is can fall apart. that's also part of the darkness our existential darkness or this you know profound psychological emotional insecurity of whether we are... Worthy of love and attention. Are you? Mm-hmm. Relationships can end. People can leave us. They could have other ideas. So we can have a. You know, this is a. That's something I uh, feel is problematic in my life. So you struggle. You know, you kind of like. You do, you do something to deserve love and attention. Try to impress people in various ways, or you make yourself indispensable, or whatever the strategy is. It can feel exhausting to have to do that in order to mitigate this fundamentally unresolvable insecurity <clears throat> how susceptible we are to pain and discomfort how afraid we are of that it's it's just it just comes with being alive you can try to be comfortable really hard if you're very afraid of pain something i it's not the case for me like i again like Of course, I don't like pain, and of course I'm afraid of it, but I'm not obsessed with it, just the way I'm not obsessed with. I'm obsessed with aloneness, but I'm not obsessed with pain. But some people are, you know, and they have to do everything in their power to not feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You see, I, I just want to, like open up certain aspects so that you can see. The darkness is actually, I I don't think it's divided in any way. All of this is kind of, I assume, is true for each of us, and yet we react to certain aspects of it more strongly than to others, and you can get to know yourself by asking yourself what it is that you are existentially concerned about. Sitting is this, like, methodical (laughs) non-method of exposing yourself to this, what I'm calling darkness. Today I'm calling darkness. I've never used it before. You shift from your mentalness, which is a way to try to strategize around, mitigate these, these issues... You shift into a, a bodyful presence and with it comes this darkness, also the delight of your aliveness at the same time. If you can even if you have even the mm, uh if you have even the taste buds for it, because the concern is so intense that we can kind of um lose her ability to um taste the delight of being alive now if you hang out in that darkness both of these things will be available both the um the, the vulnerability at the core and the delight and wonder of aliveness it's not either or it's both at the same time This is something we just don't want to accept. Mm -hmm. We just don't want to accept that it only comes together. Feel that, whether this is true for you, whether this is true that you really just don't want to accept that. Not telling you what is the case, I'm asking the question for you. It's you know you you decide <clears throat> now something I want to explore more and more, and I really will just do this step by step in some unorganized fashion is. How does Zazen practice that what you do on the cushion really connect with your everyday life? I know it connects, but how? In what ways? And if we understand how it connects, can we sort of start to practice more deliberately in certain ways with that? There's certain basic patterns, um, psychological patterns that we develop to stay, seeming, we we tried, ways we try to stay in control of this existential threat that we experience from the darkness. (sighs) The darkness. You know, but in spiritual uh, circles, you know, you have things like the dark night of the soul. That's that. It's the terror of opening up to how we actually exist. Or Joan Sutherland, uh, not that I've studied much what she's saying, but I was struck by the fact that she introduced the term "indarkenment" together with enlightenment. Okay. You don't get the dark, you don't get the, the delight of aliveness without the vulnerability at the core. You don't get the enlightenment without the endarkenment. That's what I think, you know, if I connected with what I'm talking about today, it's something like that, just what she's talking. You don't get the genuine compassion of caring for others without the heartbrokenness of again and again, feeling human suffering. You don't get the enlightenment of developed compassion without the darkenment of your... uh, resonance with the pain of the world. (coughs) Okay, so these basic strategies. There's this German guy, he's like a coach... uh, and I, I don't, I don't know him. I know him only through a friend and he's, he's started working with energetic psychology, you know, uh, maybe you've heard of tapping or emotional freedom technique and, you know, and he studied widely and brought this together. And his what he's doing is, uh, he calls this the big five, which is uh, like, you know, the big five, <laughs> the big five, you could say ways of suffering. And uh, the first is blaming others. So it's something like, if I, if I can find, it's not conscious, but anyway, if I can establish that somebody else is doing something wrong, here. And if they could correct their behavior, if they would rep- correct their behavior, then I wouldn't have to feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. <clears throat> because you can't get rid of your darkness, this strategy is wrong. It doesn't work. We, apl- we all employ it, some, more, some of us more than <laughs> others. But it's like if you, if you, the feeling is if you changed, I wouldn't feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. (laughs) The second strategy is to blame yourself. And it's similar. If I was different, if I wasn't so. Uh, incapable, so wrong, so, uh, you know, worthless, I wouldn't feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. Yeah, makes sense. You You can go back and forth, you know, you try blaming others, that doesn't work, then you blame yourself. Or you blame yourself, like for a long time, and then you get tired of it, and then you say, well, maybe I should try blaming others. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, uh, or you have it well distributed. Sometimes you do it this way, sometimes you do it that way. Now, I'm making fun of it a little bit, so there is a certain, let's have a little lightness around it. Because my own strategy is very painful, actually, to see. It's very it's very painful for me to see that I'm blaming others and that I try to get them to be different so that I can hold up the illusion that then I wouldn't be disturbed. But everybody does it. <clears throat> so we are just... When we study ourselves, we find we're not... There's no exception here. Okay, so the third one is expectations um, of others. Now, for the longest time, I thought, like, having expectations of others and blaming others is kind of the same thing. But I I don't think that's true. Um, there's some feeling like if others had the same views, beliefs, values that I did, that I have, I wouldn't feel the disturbing feelings that I'm feeling. If, and then, in addition, if they just served my needs, This isn't necessarily blaming or accusing someone else, it's just this expectation, like if they served my needs, I wouldn't feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. I'd be taken care of. This is kind of commonplace knowledge now, but if you hold expectations of others, you really set yourself up for disappointment. Because that's what others just don't do. <laughs> They're not dedicating your li- their life to you. That's just not what they do. I mean, to a certain degree, but not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, a parents will sort of dedicate 100%, but No. No, and that's the disappointment for children, too, that their parents are not perfect. Don't serve every need. Don't serve every... uh, Don't, you know, are different, actually. Have different interests, different priorities. The fourth one is loyalty. Now, I use it as a kind of technical term, but loyalty is some... There is some idea that if I dedicate my life to fixing someone else's problem, then I don't have to feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. Now, a loyalty like this makes sense when you are trying to help someone... uh with whom you have a relationship that is existentially important or you perceive it to be existentially important. Like, if you have a parent who doesn't really support you very well, you could dedicate your life to helping that parent, you know, shape up. <laughs> <laughs> so that finally you can feel okay. This could be a lifelong dedication. And what happens in that lifelong dedication is that you are not, that you can deeply neglect yourself. But it can feel the way, that way, that if I dedicate my life to this other person who is so important to me, then I will not feel the disturbing feelings that I'm feeling because then they could finally be there for me. So even if, and I would even say, especially if you haven't been treated well or being well supported, you could feel that kind of loyalty. Or you could feel that loyalty with uh, a sibling who has, you know, difficulties that you don't have. And in order to feel okay to live the life that you live, you need to attend to the needs of your sibling Because if they feel, if they have such um, hardship, then you don't really deserve to flourish. And the fifth one is age regression. This is kind of a hard one, but I don't know if you know this, but if you've noticed it in yourself or in other people but sometimes in tense situations people lose they they stop functioning at their true age and they just slip into like acting like a 5-year-old or like a teenager this doesn't make a lot of sense as a strategy really in in many ways but it does actually in this, if you if you have, if you throw a tantrum like a toddler, the feeling could be, you know, maybe if I flip out like this, somebody will finally come along and be like a, like, take care of me like a parent. And then I wouldn't have to feel these, um, disturbing feelings that I'm feeling. I mean, you just have to escalate maybe. <laughs> So this, like, completely uncontrolled anger is usually a form of age regression, you know, because it's not functional, but it's escalating things. So that you can... Now, why am I, like, enumerating it like this? Or... I think it's really... Zazen gives you the, hopefully over time, the confidence to s- sit with the darkness, but also to sit with the recognition that you are employing these strategies, or maybe others that I haven't mentioned, I'm not saying this is a complete list, um, employing these strategies to deal with this existential problem at the core so connecting zazen practice with daily life is to practice for these moments in which these in which these strategies come up when we notice in ourselves that we blame others there's a there's a need to stop maybe we can't stop ourselves right away you know like you have to vent but after you've vented for a while, hopefully that doesn't have to go on for days, maybe, you know, five minutes are enough, or maybe even just, just a quick complaint, <laughs> <laughs> then you notice it, and you sit you, yeah, and when I say sit with it, I don't necessarily mean do zazen, but you feel what it's, what that's like and you realize, okay, so I, I did that again. And then a certain kind of study. It's, what is that study? It's a study of saying, okay, I did that. First of all, be honest. Second, what is it trying to mitigate? Hmm. I don't want to feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. If this other person, the idea is, if this other person wasn't behaving the way they did, I wouldn't feel the disturbing feelings that I feel. But since they are behaving the way they do, I'm coming too late, actually. I already get to feel these feelings. And they're really my feelings. (laughs) How do you, how do you, What's the antidote to blaming others is forgiveness. (laughs) I don't think we have time. I don't have time to go into describing how we can maybe approach forgiveness in a, in a, in a genuine way that isn't like a sugar coated, like I forgive you. It's okay. And underneath it, you feel the same way. For, for, for certain things that happen to us, it's very difficult to keep entering into the space of forgiveness. But we do it for ourselves. We do it for ourselves to open up the path to feeling this existential darkness, which can be fixed, which we're trying to fix when we blame others. The antidote to self blame is self deep, profound self acceptance. You know, sometimes words like acceptance or love can, self loving yourself can feel too, um, Also too saccharine, you know. Uh, I have to love myself. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, everyone says that. (laughs) But really, I think better maybe than acceptance and love is this, just this, like, beginning to feel this shred of aliveness that I'm talking about. This, like, this, joy to be alive for no other reason than being alive, because that is really kind of the kernel of why it's even worth being alive. And from that, maybe there is some, some you know, experiential basis for for accepting and loving yourself. Not because you should. It's not going to work. We have to feel it. Like, where do you anchor that? I anchor it in breathing and feeling this, what I call aliveness. Yeah, I'm alive, so I might as well accept myself. <laughs> but anyway, there could also be a gentle way to introduce that more deliberately. I think the antidote to having expectations of others is also self-acceptance. It's a basic okayness, like I'm okay even if other people are different. They have whole different views, if they have different interests, I'm still okay. The antidote to uh, this kind of toxic loyalty that I uh, mentioned is to um, uh, make a decision to, even though you care for others, you also really have the job to care for yourself. Well, if you don't care for yourself, you can't really care for others. It's not sustainable. So not self-care in the, you know, in the cappuccino way. (laughs) Although that might be
1: fun. It's okay.
0: (laughs) No, this is too hard. I first need a cup of tea. I don't know. It's okay. You need to begin wherever you begin. It's a realization that you can't just dedicate yourself to someone else and try to prop them up so that you can um, feel better. So these implicit contracts in these loyalty arrangements that just they're just in our heads. The other person never agreed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And finally, age regression is is the antidote is to to resolve and to practice to show up for the present moment at your true age with all the life experience you have. It's very difficult to handle certain situations as a five-year-old. It's extremely hard to do. (laughs) So when you notice that you slipped into that because you wanted to be taken care of by somebody, um, remind yourself that it's possible to show up as the adult that you are and that a lot of resources skills experiences are available when we show up as this adult now if you should stop we can discuss this in a conversation that can follow now after a break um but Like I said, I have this objection to, you know, all oh, a list of core vulnerabilities and then, this, so I have this objection to a list like this too because it sounds so neat. It's like, oh, I just have to apply this. This is dirty work. It's dirty in the sense that it requires us to enter into the darkness. We don't want to be there. We don't want to feel how weird our strategies are, how, how, um, how they don't work and what has to be on the other side of the stride, like letting go of the stride. What's on the other side? On the other side, there's something like a, a deep willingness to accept feeling disturbed. That this is at the being disturbed by other people, by situations, by you know, our basically our own fragility, our own mortality, our own insecurities—that that this will happen all the time. I don't think this kind of work is ever over. It's more like if you resolve to sit and open up a space in which that is allowed to happen on the cushion, that maybe it can also allow in your, can happen in your daily life, and you can feel a certain kind of stability and confidence in the midst of it, not as a kind of alternative to it. Thank you.